listening to Talking Law, the podcast where business owners just like you discover how to avoid legal landmines and build value using smart legal tips. Join your host, Joanna Oki, as she cuts through the legal jargon and gives you clear and simple actionable legal strategies, which will get you optimal business results. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to Talking Law, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we are at part two in our two-part series, all about the top tips in business structuring for dentists and medical professionals. And of course, we have on board to talk us through this area, Stephen Guthrie from Prosperity Advisors. Now, Stephen has more than 20 years experience providing strategic business advice and taxation services to his clients. He is a director in the business services and taxation division in Prosperity's Sydney office. And he also leads Prosperity's health advisory practice and specializes in providing advice to medical and allied health professionals and their practices. Um, So today, of course, we round off this two-part series. We get deep into um, business structuring tips for dentists and medical professionals. And even though we're talking specifically about dentists and medical professions. This episode and part one in this two-part series, which you should go back and have a listen to if you haven't already listened to it, is really just as relevant for any business owner who wants to to be across and to understand structuring within their business. It can be a bit of a thorny topic. It can be one of those areas that um, we see business owners just have their eyes glaze over when they're talking about, um, as Steve and I discuss. But it really is one of those areas that can make a massive difference, not just to how you can deal with income and asset protection during the life of your business, but also that really important question uh, about taxation at exit. So we covered some of those initial elements in part one. And in part two, we're getting deeper into investment structures and options for premises ownership. So here we go. All right. So let's talk about uh, some common practice structures and um, which might be appropriate for each different type of business uh, or practice. Um, All right, so let's start with companies perhaps. Why are companies attractive? When are they best used? When are they best not used? Sure. Companies are very attractive because of the corporate tax rate. Mm. Which in Australia has been dropping and is still and will still drop further over the next few years. So Companies currently paying 27.5% tax, and that'll drop down to 25 if there are, you know, there aren't many medical professionals turning over the kind of income that keeps them at the 30% tax rate. Having said that, though, uh, it's really important to understand that unless the profits stay forever inside the company, they're going to emerge at some point by way of a distribution to the owners, mm. at which point there will still be tax to pay on that distribution. So yes. the, the lower corporate tax rate is really just a deferral process until the profits emerge to someone individual's hands. So that can be really attractive in instances where, as an example, I've got a collection of allied health professionals who've come together and set up a business. Uh, they had a reasonably high uh, startup debt 
to fund the fit out and to fund you know, acquisition of the of the practice. So if they set up in a company, which is what we ended up doing for them, they didn't have any personal services income issues, so we didn't have to worry about that. They were going to be able to pay tax in the company at 27.5%. That would leave them 72.5% of the net profit left over inside the structure out of which to pay back their bank debt. Compared to running through a trust structure where all the profits get taxed to the individuals and all that's left is, you know, after they've paid the 47% personal tax rate, they've got, they've got less after-tax money left over to pay back their bank debt. Mm. So companies can be quite useful uh, as, a me- as a mechanism to fast-track your debt repayments. Obviously, at, at some point, that doesn't, you know, you've, you've reached the point where you've paid off your debt, at which point you're probably looking to extract some of that money. It will come out as a dividend and there'll be top-up tax to pay potentially. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, I guess that's uh, why companies tend to be attractive. They pay tax in their own right. You don't pay tax on the profits at a shareholder level until the money comes out. The flip side, of course, is that companies are highly regulated. And if you've got an owner who thinks of the company money as their own money and they keep on dipping their hand into the company bank account and taking money out, then that's going to give rise to a loan account, which may need to be managed. There's a provisions called Division 7A, which deal with shareholder loans. Companies tend to be a bit more regulated and need to be well managed in order to actually get any of the benefit of the lower tax rate. So flip side to lower tax rate is perhaps higher regulation. And higher regulation um, and, and, and perhaps at points being um, used inappropriately appropriately, as you were talking about before, yeah. um, if, you know, if the income is all coming from one source or whatever. Sole traders then, what, um, it's interesting that there is still uh, quite a few um, professionals using this uh, approach, but maybe give us your ideas on it. So quite often at the start of their journey as a practitioner, whether it's a medical or a dental, an individual will start out as a sole trader. They move out of kind of a salaried role and might take up private practice rights, start doing some billing in in, in private practice. Uh, look, a sole trader kind of arrangement where they're just taxed in their own in their own name is is quite a legitimate first port of call for them. At the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, a surgeon who's been in practice for twenty years may well also be a sole trader. The issue for specialists tends to be that all their income is generated off their own activity. They can't mm. they can't say, well, I've employed someone else to do my role as well. So quite often, quite high earning medical professionals like you know, th- surgeons and ophthalmologists and uh, prothodontists and kind of other variations thereof may have a significant, they may, they may stay as a sole trader simply because the tax system doesn't allow them to hive off a share of their income to someone else in the family, as it were. Mm. Which is where you get to the service trust or other kind of structuring opportunities that might exist for those people. Mm. And let's talk about that then. So, how is it that you use the service entities in that way to alleviate those issues? Yeah, so I'm I'm old enough to and grey enough to have been around in the glory days of service trusts. <laughs> When people used to set up a service trust, employ all the staff and pay for all the premises and then put a, like a 40 or 50% markup on those, yeah. on those costs and use that as a mechanism to kind of charge themselves a fee for what was otherwise just kind of market-based costs that they were incurring. Mm. And 
cut away a share of the income and pay that off to the family. ATO obviously came down on that quite a long time ago in terms of uh, saying, well, if you're going to have a, a service vehicle, uh, we're going to restrict the level of markup that you can you can apply to to the costs that are being incurred. And and that's quite, you know, well, that's 10% or, or mm. less. It's, it's certainly not, not in the glory days of the 40 and 50% kind of realm. <laughs> um, but... Having said that, there's still a place for service entities. And quite often, uh, some professionals, some, some groups of professionals practice as collectives, so like radiologists, mm. often where there's a, a significant uh, expenditure on equipment, which is shared. Mm. So they come together and they, they buy the expensive radiology machine or w- whatever it is. And in those, in those arrangements, you quite often find that a fee is being paid across to a commonly owned entity which owns the equipment. And that fee is probably higher than what they would be able to extract were they just an individual running their own little service entity with their wife employed or their husband employed as a practice mm. manager. So looking at uh, opportunities to use service structures, they're still there, but it's, it's not just a case of we're going to set up a sister entity and rip out a whole lot of profit without reference to any of the rules that now exist around use of service structures. Mm, yeah. All right. And so then if we're looking at trusts, so we've looked at companies, sole traders, obviously the next area is trusts. And in trusts, we have family trusts and or unit trusts. And uh, I guess just as the the quick overview, I'm, I'm sure many, I mean, I don't know, trusts are often, I must say, this, this sort of structure that feels a little bit mystical sometimes when I'm talking to clients, you know, they have not ever full, and, you know, I must say actually to a lot of lawyers, they seem a little bit mystical as well. So an interesting, it's, uh, they can be interesting. So family trusts, you know, I guess we're talking here about trusts that have a far more discretionary component and unit trusts where we which is the type of trust that we would use where there's third party relationships generally is that right is that the way you uh, look at them and deal with them yeah so family trusts i always think of trying to explain trust they're a bit like a funnel so you know the trust is a, is an entity which can a separate legal entity it carries on it can carry on business own assets do anything an individual can do or a company can do. It's just at the end of the day, end of each year, whatever income has been earned by the trust is almost invariably allocated by the trustees to this group of people called the beneficiaries. And it's they're the ones through whom to whom the profit is allocated and who will pay the tax on that income. And so the trust is a really, a family trust is a really good kind of vehicle within a fam within a single family group that's the name family (laughs) discretionary trust a family trust uh but they don't they don't work for they don't work tax effectively for unrelated parties yeah unit trusts are some kind somewhere between the family trust and the company kind of in the spectrum of of structures they have a lot of the flexibility of trusts, but they have equitable interests in them so that they have units uh, which can be held by either individuals or perhaps family trusts. And this is where, and then when we start talking about, um, you know, trusts, holding trusts, uh, of course, that's when clients just start to get a little bit 
confused. But that's why we have structure diagrams. I that's guess. right. That's where their eyes glaze over. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's yeah, exactly, exactly. We can hear it happening right now. But I guess we've talked, you know, when in the beginning of this show all about why uh, family trust can be problematic. So, and maybe if you can just give us a quick snapshot about. Um, you know, some things to look out for, some things that could potentially be pro- problematic in unit trust. Yeah, unit trust. So think of a client, a bunch of specialists who've come together and set up a day hospital. And caveat, we weren't involved in the in the establishment of the structure. <laughs> um, so a significant level of debt, significant level of expenditure within the unit trust to set up this day hospital mm. and all of that went well. It was So the unit trust was owned by one of these structures where the unit trusts are owned by the family trusts of each of the medical professionals. The problem has been that because of the nature of you know, being a startup activity, the unit trust is both incurring significant interest cost as a result of its debt to, to set up the day hospital, but it also has significant depreciation deductions mm. on the expenditure. And at the moment in its startup phase, it's not making a profit. In fact, it's making significant losses. Mm. Those losses are trapped within the unit trust. Trusts can't distribute losses to their beneficiaries. And so in this circumstance, we have a bunch of high-earning medical professionals who own an interest in a structure which has multi-million dollar losses in it, which they can't get access to. That's a great story. I love that. Had that been thought about better in the planning process, there would have been other steps that could have been put in place. The debt might have been kept outside of the structure at an individual level. Mm. We might have found a way to generate income sooner. Can't really deal with the depreciation. That's going to that's sit where the assets sit. Mm. But, but thinking ahead would have helped solve that problem or alleviate Mm. it to a large degree. Mm. All right. So then um, moving on to investment structures. So what structures should we be thinking about when we're looking at investment structures? Uh, So probably my first preliminary comment is that it's a really good principle of kind of asset protection and risk management that you keep your investment assets away from your business asset. Mm. So if you have a structure which you've used to to run your business and it's typically the the structure that has risk, then when, when it comes to owning investment assets, you're trying to find a structure or an individual who's not at risk. Mm. You wouldn't put your new investment property inside the same structure that you use to run your business. That would just be poor planning because mm. if your business goes down, those assets are at risk. So what are the big options? Self-managed super, assets in your own name or the in the name of a spouse or a family member who's in a less risky position than you, alternatively, an investment structure like a a trust, whether it's a unit trust or a discretionary trust, or even a corporate might be appropriate in some circumstances to act as your investment company. And one of the things um, I think I should make sure I throw in here because it can be confusing for people sometimes, if we're talking about a, say, for example, you you have a family trust that is holding shares within four a company that runs a business or a practice or holds a practice, the uh, we're not talking here about there being an issue with that family trust that is simply holding the pure asset of the shares. Then also 
being used to hold other assets, right? What we're particularly concerned about is not mixing the entities that have liability together with our pure asset holding entities. I guess that's the, you know, that's sort of the the distinction. Yeah, the risk exists within the structure that is carrying on the business, not at the level of the passive owner of that business. Mm. And, you know, and that might seem obvious to us, but I, I think... This is one of the one of the things that I sometimes see not quite they're not being um, full understanding of. So that's just what, why I thought I'd sort of point it out there. Um, and I think it's a good point in relation to when you were talking about the personal name element. Uh, it's a it's a really good point because many people have this opportunity when they're buying their own personal home or, or whatever, sometimes they're, they're, it can be useful to have a bit of a reflection on who is it in our um, family that is holding risk. Sometimes it's a good idea to make sure that that's not the person who's holding assets as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> good. Okay. All right. So, and what's, I, I guess, an example of, you know, some some good models of investment structures that, that you've used that you've seen work really well? Uh, so, at a personal level, buying assets in, in individuals' names, yeah, it can be useful to think about kind of if they're buying in real estate assets, for example, looking at assets in different states to utilize mm-hmm. the land tax thresholds that exist, mm-hmm. looking at who owns the asset because you, you know, each person will get their kind of access to those kind of thresholds. In terms of if you're running your business or practice through a discretionary trust and you actually are generating surplus income which you want to invest, but you don't want that income to have emerged from the family trust into an individual's name where it's taxed at a high tax rate, it is possible to set up a company which becomes the beneficiary of that trust and move the money from the practice trust across to the corporate beneficiary, only pay tax at the low company tax rate, and then invest the money inside the company. Fabulous! Our bucket company. Our bucket traditional <laughs> bucket company. You know there are there are disincentives to owning assets that grow in value inside companies, but it, you know everything's a trade off in terms of tax now versus tax later. It's about understanding that trade off, um, yeah. obviously, isn't it? Um, and taking the right advice. <laughs> All right. And so then if we're talking about uh, premises ownership, let, let's just have a really quick look at this uh, as well, because that's another common strategy for practice owners to purchase their own premises um, quite often in their self-managed super funds. So maybe run us through some positives and negatives in in relation to um, premises ownership? Sure. Uh, so again, uh, there's a wide variety of options. Let's just talk about the, um, so they could be owned in individual names. You could own your practice premises inside a, inside a separate family trust, kept away from your practice. Or probably the one that gets most people interested is the self-managed super fund option. Yeah. Practice ownership inside a self-managed fund you know, can have some real benefits. Obviously, the rental income will be taxed at the tax rate that the super fund's paying, 15%. The future capital gain on that premises will be a maximum of 10%, possibly Mm -hmm. zero, depending on the level of assets and where the person sits in terms of their pension position. There are some constraints. If there's going to be borrowing involved, then obviously you need to be working your way through the limited recourse borrowing arrangements that exist within super funds and the the capacity of the fund to borrow itself. Rental needs to be at a market rate. One of the interesting things we see with multiple owners, kind of, so I've got a group of dentists who've, who are building a, a new premises and they want to 
Their ideal is to own that premises inside their super fund, but they don't have enough money inside their super fund to fund the whole development. So there's going to be some debt involved. It's not going to work if they each borrow within their super fund to buy their one quarter share of the practice premises and do the build. It's just not the way the rules work. So a really good structure in that case is to have to set up a unit trust, which is the the structure that goes out and borrows money and builds the new premises and the units in that unit trust are owned by their their super funds. Mm. Um, So their super fund only puts in a small proportion of the money. The rest of it's funded by debt. But ultimately what will happen is that uh, the debt will be repaid over time and the super fund will end up with quite a valuable interest in a unit trust which owns the premises. Mm. That's a really short explanation of what is a complex structure and needs to be understood. <laughs> but uh, there are ways around the fact that your super fund may not have enough assets in it at the moment mm. to fund your premises. Mm. So it shouldn't just be ruled out because I haven't quite got to that point yet. Mm, absolutely fabulous. Okay, well, that's a, a really good tip. I like that one. Well, look, do you, do you have any sort of general takeaways out of all of this that you think it's important to leave our audience with? When your accountant talks to you about structures, don't let your eyes glaze over. Uh, it is it is important. What's important is to understand what the future holds for you and whether your both business and investment structures are kind of future-proof, mm. whether they're flexible enough to cover what are the most likely options that you're going to see in the near kind of medium to long-term horizon Mm, mm. and do that regularly. Do it regularly, plan in advance. Absolutely. I think really, really salient points there, Stephen. So, Stephen, um, if any of our listeners have a burning desire now to go and do that review of their structure, (laughs) how, how can they find you? Prosperity Advisors website or Prosperity Health will find my picture and a, and a link to me and a, an email address. More than happy to uh, have an initial discussion. Quite often what we do is we will do an initial review and see if we can add some value and point out some problems and work out some solutions. Absolutely fabulous. And um, have no fear if you are driving along uh, on your way to or from uh, your practice or indeed if you're lucky enough to be running along on the beach while you're listening to this don't worry we've got uh, Stephen's details in our show notes and on our website well Stephen I just want to say a very big thank you for coming on to Talking Law today it's um it's been great I hope our audience's eyes haven't glazed over I think we've kept it interesting it's hard structuring isn't necessarily the most interesting topic and yet it's so so important thank you very much for having me Well, that's it for our two-part series all about the top tips in business structuring for dentists and medical professionals with Stephen Guthrie from Prosperity Advisors. I hope you really enjoyed this two-part series. Maybe enjoy is too strong a word for when we're talking about structures, but I hope at least that you found it illuminating. Um, If you'd like more information about this topic, then head over to our show notes where we link straight through to Stephen Guthrie at Prosperity Advisors or head over to our website at talkinglaw.com.au and through that website you'll be able to download a transcript of this podcast episode if you would 
just love to read it in more detail. And of course, on our website, you'll also find details of how to contact our legal eagles at Aspect Legal. If you or any of your clients would like help with any of the items that we covered today, or indeed, um, if you have a business or a practice that is looking at exit at some point in the future, or indeed looking at acquisition for growth, and we can help guide you um, through these processes in the right way. Now, finally, if you enjoyed what you heard, I'd be ever so grateful if you could hit the subscribe button. And why don't you consider perhaps leaving us a review on your favorite podcast player? Well, that's it. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and Talking Law, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Looking for a top quality legal team to assist you in your organisation? Aspect Legal is an innovative commercial legal practice that specialises in providing fast and professional services for their clients. If you'd like to chat about how we might be able to assist you, simply head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au to book in a time for a free discussion with one of our lawyers. Thanks for listening to Talking Law. Tune in next time for more smart legal tips and tricks to keep you clear of those legal landmines. If you want to get a download of today's show notes, head over to talkinglaw.com.au. Information in this podcast is general in nature, not legal advice. If you want advice for your business, visit talkinglaw.com.au.